As I often do during the Green Sundays, I'm going to preach on all three of the readings. The reading from 2 Samuel, which is the continuation of the uh, David's soap opera. And the letter to the Ephesians, which has, well, I'll say this in a minute. And then also uh, John's Gospel, where we have the feeding of the 5,000 and how we might make sense of that. Uh, There is, maybe this is too oblique, but there's a thread that runs through these readings that have to do with power uh, and its use and how we understand the nature of God's power, God's providence, God's omnipotence. And what does that mean for us as Christian people? And then something about the power of God at work in abundance and in the ability to uh, make quiet the storms and stresses of nature, but also of our own lives, our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states. So here's the continuation. Oh, I did want to say this in the psalm that we sung. This is uh, Psalm 14. Uh, The psalms appear differently in terms of which number it is in the Roman Catholic uh, lectionary. That's why you have the Latin uh, introduction. And this one is Dixit Incipiens. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the fool is insipid. It's a great description. St. Anselm. An Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century uh, wrote a a little treatise on the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It was a a letter to the fool about all of this. And I would suggest to you that in the culture we live in now, uh, this is one of the reigning views, right? There is no God. All are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is none who does any good. Right? And that is the view of many very enlightened individuals or people who fancy themselves to be good liberal people. More on that in a little bit. So David is in his house and he hasn't gone to fight in his battles. He's lounging around and he gets up and he looks out the window or on his poor on his you know thing and he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath actually she was taking uh, she was doing a myth in the mikvah which is the ritual bath uh, that people do and he sees her uh, her name is Bathsheba and he says who is that woman And they say, well, it's uh, Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, the daughter of so-and-so. And And he said, well, send her up here. Every time I hear the word Uriah, I think of that rock band in the 1970s, Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep is not from the Bible. Uriah Heep was in Dickens. So it's a different character uh, altogether. But Uriah the Hittite... Uh, is is important. So she comes up and uh, they, as it says in the biblical sense, lie together and she gets pregnant. 
I should have said this in the beginning. What we're reading today is part of what they call the succession or the, the story of the Davidic dynasty. And the quality of the Hebrew in this section is extremely good. It is some of the best Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible. And it, the, the reason that's important is that it is chronicling events when those were written, probably within the first, little less than the first generation after David which means that the eyewitness ter testimony uh, is, is pretty good in terms, and that's why it's so detailed. So Bathsheba gets pregnant. She sends word to David, I'm pregnant. So David sends for Uriah the Hittite, and Uriah the Hittite comes and he says, you, you know, you've been traveling and you must be tired. Um, why don't you go down to your house? And he said, I wouldn't do such a thing. The Ark of the Covenant is in, is in a booth. All of my men are there on the front line. I, I simply wouldn't do such a thing because if you're engaged in a holy war, you uh, are, are to abstain from sexual relations. That's the rule. So he doesn't, he, he sleeps on the porch of David's house. So this is a big conundrum. David says, well, maybe the thing to do is to feed him a big meal and get him drunk. And then maybe you'll go down and he'll see Bathsheba. And he does that and Uriah doesn't go down. He just falls asleep on a couch, passes out. So that doesn't work either. And finally, he gives Uriah the Hittite uh, a communication, a, le we, a letter. And he said, give this to your commanding officer. And in the letter, it says, put Uriah the Hittite in the worst part of the fighting. Which he does, and Uriah the Hittite is killed. And so then David sends for Bathsheba. And the story will continue. Bathsheba is going to have that baby and the baby is not going to live. And then she's going to get pregnant again. And she's going to have a son named Solomon. This is the story of the succession. Right? Why is this important to Christian people? Because in the time of Jesus and for people who believe Jesus was the Messiah, this was the idea they had in their mind in terms of what would things be like for the people of Israel when the Messiah was reigning. And it would be the greatest days that we can remember as a people. And those are the days of David and Solomon. The halcyon days, to use the fancy term. The great days. They're going to be recapitulated in front of us with the Messiah. So they paid very careful attention to these stories. So next week, we'll hear probably a visit from the prophet Nathan. And he will have a little uh, conversation or a rant from Nathan about his behavior. You know, this is about how great people have moral lapses. It's about how all of us have feet of clay. 
It's about people who have expectations that you can live your life according to a set of principles absolutely perfectly. And nobody can do that. It is an absolute impossibility. And to bring modern research into this picture, I want to mention to you a book I've started to talk about by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree on Religion and Politics. He's something in this world that I don't know a lot about called a moral psychologist. And they're all connected up with people who study child development, who do stuff with uh, the brain, you know, how people make decisions. And one of the ways they do this work, it's like a sociologist, is that they interview people. Or they'll tell people a story, and the people will then react to the story in terms of how they, how they think about it, how they feel about it. And one of the things that he discovered in his work was an affirmation of something that has now been rejected by many people uh, since the early part of the Enlightenment, probably since the 19th century or maybe even before. The philosopher David Hume, famous in the 18th century, said, Reason is the slave of the passions. Reason is the slave of the passions. Our parishioner Ralph Qualls says over and over again that many years ago an attorney said to him, Ralph, you cannot reason somebody out of a position that they did not use reason to get into. And what Jonathan Haidt is talking about is, is that we use reason to justify the decisions that we make because of our commitments, our intuition. And so he uses an example in his book, the Mahout, I think that's what, the way you pronounce that, who rides the elephant. So you get on the elephant, and the elephant is walking along like this, and the Mahout is the driver. So the Mahout is the reason. But what happens is, as, that, as you are driving the elephant, if the elephant wants to go in a certain direction, uh, there's little that the mahout can do to stop that process in terms of the size of the animal, right? And that's like our intuition. So in the questionnaires that he asks people, he gives them examples to see whether they believe it's a moral problem or just a custom that is gross or whatever it is that you do. And he tells, he asks them stories. And he said most of the time, and all of his researchers do this, most of the time the answer comes immediately. And then when they're challenged about their decision or their affirmation, they get into an elaborate process of reasoning about why it is they believe this or why it's true. So what comes first? The mahout or the elephant? And that's true with most of us, how we make 
moral decisions. He says there are six categories that determine how we make moral decisions. And, and in terms of people who situate themselves on some sort of a spectrum of, say, very liberal to very conservative. And these six things are care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And in his fighting, I should say this too, just so you know, he says in the beginning of his book, I am a uh, liberal Western atheist. So my discovery is, is that liberals tend to focus, if not uh, mostly, exclusively on care and fairness. And harm. Who gets harmed? And people who are more conservative uh, also think liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity are important. Now this has a lot to do about how you understand how we ought to order society. And his experience in India was something that had an enormous influence on him. He lived there for a year or two in a town. There was a university there. I don't, can't remember the name. And he describes his experience. And when he first got there as a, a liberal American, he was just absolutely outraged at what he saw. He said, these people are spending two hours a day engaged in meaningless religious rituals in his opinion. He goes over to some professor's house and he sits in the house and he's served dinner by women who never speak a word to him. And he describes a, a variety of other practices that go on. He said, I just... And after a year, he began to see the sort of way that worked and what mattered to the people. And his affection and gratitude to them increased. So he began to do some thinking about, say, America. I, I believe this country is divided right down the middle. And so it's important to see how uh, we can have some common life together uh, with the views that we hold, that we believe, are important. And so he talks about how liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity can also be part... You know, these things matter to me, and I think I'm a liberal. That's how I would describe myself to somebody who was doing a survey. Right? So it's interesting. When we look at King David's behavior... Do you believe what Plato's colleague said, that we only behave in a moral fashion if we know somebody is watching? Is there stuff you won't do even if you know you're not being watched? These are the kinds of questions uh, my morals and ethics professor would ask us in seminary. And we'd all sit there like, <laughs> yeah, huh? 
Anyway, I'm just putting it out there, and I thought I'd do it at a time when we have somebody who is guilty of a moral lapse but is considered a great leader. And David is going to be indelibly affected by what's happened here, both positively and negatively, because we're going to see now the bell curve operating, and he's moving this way in terms of his kingdom as we move forward. Paul is speaking about the providence of God in Ephesians and what is important to people who seek to follow Christ. And one of the things that he says is important is that in our interaction with one another, we should be concerned with reflecting back to others the power of God's love at work in the lives of people. And that the thing that binds us in terms of understanding God's omnipotence is primarily God's love. And you hear me say over and over again that when God's judgment and God's love collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. There are Christian people in this country who would absolutely disagree with me. Ernest Cockrell one time said in a sermon discussion group, he's from Oklahoma originally, and he said, you know, I, as a kid, you know, you, 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 you go to church and, and you're to accept Jesus in your heart and believe that Jesus is your personal Savior. And that when you do, you have now assured yourself of post-mortem bliss. But you need to spend the rest of your life walking on eggs in the event you might slip and lose your salvation. Do you believe that? There's many who do. Paul is focusing today on the providence of God having to do with the fact that each one of us should know that we have a loving God who cares for us. And when we connect with that God, it can provide us the opportunity to uh, deal with the storm und drang of life a little bit better than we do now if we don't. We, were going to, we could have read the story of the feeding of the multitude in, in Mark's gospel, and it was deliberately not read. And we read today this story in John's gospel, which is richer in its Eucharistic imagery, and that's the reason, because what's being said here is very reminiscent of the Eucharist, this is the only miracle that Jesus... Uh, by the way, that word is never used in John's Gospel. It's sign. This sign. And it is a description of God's abundance in the midst of perceived lack. Deacon Weber pointed out in the sermon discussion that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, uh, they, they say they don't have anything to eat. What are we going to do? He said, we'll find something for them. It's a good stewardship sermon. Right. But this is about God's abundance. And also, Jesus does something in this particular account of the feeding of the 5,000 that is very much like the Eucharist. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, 
and he gives it. Dom Gregory Dix, the author of the famous The Shape of the Liturgy, says the Eucharist in reductionist terms can be reduced to four acts that you need to see take place for it to be the Eucharist. We take the bread at the offertory. We bless the bread at, in, in the Eucharistic prayer. We break the bread and we give it. That's the shape of the liturgy. And you see it here reproduced in John's Gospel. Now there's something that's put on the end editorially of this, and it's the story of Jesus walking on the water and stilling the storm. So at the end of this feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes off by himself. These are biblical passages, by the way, that contemplatives would use or, or monastic people would use to say, Jesus went off by himself to pray. It's encouragement for, for us to spend some quiet time with God, which he does. He models this behavior for us. He goes to be by himself and to be quiet. And so the disciples get into a boat and they're going to go somewhere across the, the lake or whatever. And a storm comes up and the water is very rough and turbulent and they're afraid. And all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. They don't recognize him immediately and he comes close to the boat and in our translation in English, it says, it is I. Well, I hate to sound like a big you, but if you read it in Greek, Jesus says to the people in the boat, I am. What's one of the names for God in Exodus at the burning bush when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? I am being thought thinking itself sent you. And so Jesus uses that name for God to refer to himself. John's gospel is not as reluctant to uh, reproduce those passages as the synoptic tradition does, right? But it's an affirmation of Jesus' absolute identification with God's purposes for him. We are not God, but our true self is God. And you see that in, in this passage from John's Gospel. And the storm is stilled. And it means that the power of God is able to deal with turmoil and stress and storm not just with nature, but we take that as we meditate on it and understand that God is available to us to still the internal turmoil and anxiety that we have. Sometimes we're restless, irritable, and discontent. And it's a way in which we can do something about that. So this week, think about how you use your power. You know, power is another one of the 
sort of politically correct things about how we use power and what it is. It's always spoken about in very grand terms. Most of the time, people use power uh, to refer to often to the ordinary, commonplace, day-to-day -day things where each of us has a little niche where we can exercise power or close to absolute power over the circumstance in which we find ourselves in relation to other people, and we can get our way with the way in which we, we do that. I was watching Dr. Phil a long time ago, and Dr. Phil was sitting in there with some call-ins, and a guy phones in to Dr. Phil, and he said, Dr. Phil, I need your advice about something. My wife, uh, we're going to redecorate our apartment, and my wife has started the process of redecorating the apartment, and I would like to have some input into how this apartment is redecorated. And Dr. Phil said, why? <laughs> why do you want to do that? You know, hello? Gee. But a lot of people do. We need to share power in our relationship, right? It's a 50-50. There are some things. Go ahead. I, I heard another interview with Warren Buffett once. He said, I don't even know what color my bedroom is. I don't know what color the sheets are or the towels in the bathroom. I don't know. I'm not focused on that. He didn't say, I'm focused on more important things. He merely said, I'm focused on different things. Right? You pick the color. Doesn't matter. But many of us spend a lot of time getting sick or crazy over it ought to matter. Right? You should be. So see how you use your power. Remember that uh, God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is available to you at all times. And you need to tell that to people sometimes in the teeth of the resistance uh, that you might get because it's, it's the truth. And know also that God is available to you to still the storms and anxieties and the stresses in your life uh, and bring things to uh, a more serene place. Amen.